Thanks for being here this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Ephesians this fall, and we are going through it rather quickly. Um, so we're going to cover, we're covering big paragraphs of it. And this morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13. And then in January and February we're going to do... Um, be a part of the Explore God Chicago. And so some of you asked and mentioned you'd be willing to help with that as well. So if you're interested in that, there'll be some, uh, just come see me and we can, it, it'll be a great opportunity for us. You'll hear more about it in the next uh, coming weeks. But Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles and fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, just thanks for your word. Thanks for bringing us back together at the beginning of a week to look at your word together, to be encouraged by your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just teach us this morning, encourage us through it, guide us through it, that we would see the gift of the church is and what you've called us to be. i got to pray to be with those who are just struggling this morning emotionally and spiritually and physically. Just give them great strength. Give them your grace. Help them to know that you are very, very near. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We sing, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you are all to us. But we live in the midst of a culture that is consumed by many gods and many idols. And an idol is just anything that's a, that's a God substitute. And, and, and this culture that we live in that is consumed by all these gods and all these idols and all these things that are, uh, that are supposed to be answering all their deep questions doesn't seem to be bringing much 
hope to people in our, in our culture. I mean, the latest statistics just recently have come out that, the, uh, that in our culture, in America, the people um, of all ages are just feeling absolutely alone and alienated. And loneliness is one of the most epidemic issues of our culture today. With all the connections and all the ways to connect with people, loneliness is the great epidemic, worse than cancer, worse than obesity, they said recently. And, and all of this is not from people who are 70 and older and living alone. The, the most lonely people in our culture today are people um, in age 22 to 35, they say. With all these connections, all these ways to be consumed by something. And the church, and, and I think this is leaving people very angry, which is why they've called this day and age the culture of outrage. Which is why then there's this, then there's the church. The big C church, which is going on all across. It started early this morning for us all across the world. It's going to continue all day long. People are gathering in little clusters of groups all across the country, all across the world, representing the big C and little C churches, local gatherings, who have this message that they sing, that the saving love of Christ is the measure of our lives, and that we believe that you are all to us. And then we walk into tomorrow, into a world that it doesn't seem like that is consuming anybody. And how do we deal with that? That we have this great message that we, we believe when we gather on Sundays and then we walk out into a world that just it doesn't seem like everything we sang today is actually true. That was in many ways the same situation that the church of Ephesus was in. These little groups of people in this massive big city who were, who were gathering together and singing the great names of Je- the great the greatness of Jesus Christ, his unsearchable greatness, how his name was above every name that was ever named. And then they'd walk outside their house and they would see a very popular city with lots of money and lots of wealth and lots of religions and lots of little gods. And I think there could have been for them a feeling of, really, is it true? Because what we sing and believe doesn't seem like it's the dominant theme of the world. And how do we get help with that? And Paul's painted for us in Ephesians this picture. He's painted this this picture of revealing realities. And he's trying to get us to have the right imagination and the right lens to look at this reality that we feel and that we see. We may never speak it out loud, but you sense it every day to go to work and drive on 88 and see thousands of people heading there with a different purpose, hopefully, than you have. Or around here, and Paul says... As he writes Ephesians, he's revealing realities of the culture that we have, and he is reassuring the saints. He said, you're chosen, and then you were chosen, and then you were put together in the church, and Christ is the head of that, and he ends Ephesians 1.22 with, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and it's, it's Christ the head, and this, the body, the saints of God are the body, who are, we, the church is filling the world with Christ. We are the visible representation of Christ. And then he ends chapter 2 with, verse 22, and in him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God's spirit. 
These are big truths and big realities that he's trying to remind them of to, to grow your imagination. Grow up in Christ. And as he does this every single time, he says these big truths, and then he, he goes to pray. He did it at the end of chapter 1. He, he prayed for them. And then he starts in chapter, he said this big truth that this is Christ's body is the church. We are, we are the visible representation of Christ to the world. That's how everything's being filled. All in all is through the church, through Christ who's the, the head of it. And then Paul, he starts to pray. He says, for this reason I, Paul, and then he pauses and he digresses for a few sections in this verse. And then he picks up the prayer again in verse 14. But in this digression, in this pause that Paul gives, he, he kind of clears for us some windows. And he shines a little more light for us on the grace of God, for the church, and what he's called us to grow up into, because we need some help. We need some help to see through some of the windows. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, and he describes three windows for us that are very helpful for us to get the right imagination. He gives a window of wonder, of the manifold wisdom of God. He gives a window of weakness, and he gives a window of witness. And my aim this morning for us, listen, is to clear some windows of our faith so that we don't lose heart, which is what he says to these people as well, because they don't see it. It doesn't seem like, in the culture we live in, that these realities are really true. So we need to clear some windows of our faith so that we don't lose heart and that we will come to God with boldness and with confidence because of the access that we have through Jesus Christ. And the first window that he kind of breaks up for them is this, this mystery of the manifold wisdom of God. He goes, I, Paul, prisoner for Christ, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how this mystery was made. And he uses this word mystery, mystery, over and over again in this section. And it's different. If you think of this idea of mystery as the way we think of mystery, like it's some hidden treasure, that's not the way Paul is describing it. Like we don't know where it's at. This, this mystery that was head, hidden. Like there's a, some treasure out in the middle of the West right now that many people have died for. Some billionaire uh, buried a bunch of treasure and all these people are out there looking for it. It's a mystery. Nobody knows. He left some clues, but nobody knows what's going on. Or if I really wanted to interest you and I knew the mega million winner number right now, for Monday night, many of you would lean in uh, if I'd say, I, I know the mystery to that. That's what Paul's, he's describing for them this mystery. That's not the way he's talking about mystery. The, 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 the way, the Greek meaning of mystery, how these people would have understood mystery is that, hey, this, there's something that was beyond knowing on our own. There was, uh, but it's been opened up to us. It's been opened up to us. It's an open secret now, and it's something that was previously unknown, and it would not have been able to be unknown unless it was revealed, but now it's been revealed. And he goes, how the mystery was made known to me, how this was openly revealed. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into Christ. And he says how this mystery was made known to me. What mystery was made known to the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul had no desire for Jesus Christ. He actually was persecuting the church. Didn't believe in Jesus at all. And he's walking down the road in Acts chapter 9. It says, completely 
determined to go and wipe out any belief in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, this light appears and a voice from heaven speaks to him and he says, why do you persecute me? And it was revealed to Paul that Jesus was alive, that he had risen from the dead. And this, there's no other way for Paul to get this, but God revealed it to him. Just out of this mysterious way, he, he spoke it to him, and Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ. The mystery is, first of all, it's Christ that was revealed to Paul. It's how he became a Christian. He didn't learn it in a book. He was walking down a path, completely going a different direction. God woke him up by speaking to him, and it was this gift of this mystery to God. And it was not only that, the gospel was just connection. He says where the mystery was, now I'm called as a Jew to go to preach to Gentiles who would have no business whatsoever with this mystery. The, the, Jews had no, the, the Gentiles had no access to God, but Paul says... There was this new connection. God broke down the wall so that Jews and Gentiles could be brought into one and so that there could actually be a third group of people, which is us, the church. This was a mystery. Nobody would have figured this out by reading the Old Testament. They had some things pointed to it, but, but it was never going to be figured out unless it was revealed to them by grace. And now they were saying now that all people can be brought near to God. Jews and Gentiles. And God has a plan to make all nations, out of all the earth, every tongue, tribe, and nation, will be brought to and can be brought near to God. And no other previous generation would have seen this. This was, this was the mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so there, there should be a desire to get together, to mix things up. There should be a desire in our church to see other races, other nationalities, other different backgrounds gathered together as a church, if that's part of our community. Because that's the cause and the call of Christ. That's the, that's the church. That should be your desire uh, we, we may live in a very predominantly one nationality, but we should desire it and do everything we can to gather. That, that was what Paul's saying. There should be this new people of God. There is this new people of God, which would never be figured out. All this stuff was covered before time. It, it, was, it would never have been figured out that the means to, for people to get close to God was through the blood of Jesus Christ. That God would come as a lowly human that nobody would guess was the savior of the world and he would be butchered on a cross and that was the means that God was going to redeem people from their sin that never would have been figured out outside of revelation or that God would tear down the wall that separates Jew and Gentiles from by nullifying the, the law it never would have been figured out that way or that one body of Jews and Gentiles would have equal access to God this, and have a new way to be near to God would never have been figured out had God not revealed it. It was the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel. Just a quick question. Are you near to God? Do you know you're near to God? And do you know what brought you and is bringing you to near to God? What are you trusting in to get you to God? If it's because you've been in church all your life, or you like Jesus, or you enjoy nice people, it doesn't make you near to God. What makes us near to God is that we see who Jesus is, that he came for us, he died on the cross for our sins, that our sins separated us from God, that we needed someone to rescue us from ourselves. 
And Jesus did that for us. And when we approach God, as Martin Luther said, we, we can only hold up empty hands. A church is a group of people who have been rescued by Jesus by grace, not by anything that you do. So when you picture your Christianity, your faith, does it start where a point in your life where you realize there's nothing that I can do to earn God's favor? Nothing that I can do. It's all what Jesus did for me. And all you do and all you see yourself is standing before God with empty hands saying, there's nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. Is that your faith? Is that how you know you've been brought near to God, trusting in Jesus Christ alone? That's the gospel. That's what true Christianity is. That's what brings you in to be the people of God, to bring us into the church of God. And Paul opens this up and he says, this is the window, this is this mystery that never would have been figured out before, but it's, by, it's the mystery of the manifold wisdom of God. God did this. This is not a human idea. Nobody would have thought this up by God. But then he gives this window of weakness, which we don't think about too much, but Paul says this. He says, Paul, I'm a, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He says, I'm a steward. I'm a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is undeserved favor. We have been trained in our culture to react to power, haven't we? It's all about power. All about being in control. Every news thing is all about who's got the power and people not wanting other people to have the power and how to get the power. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. And, and, and Paul says, for all these people who are in Ephesus, who walked out of their little gathering on their Sundays and looked at the world and saw there's, there's power everywhere. This, this seems like a dominant thing. That, that, that There's more money out there. There's more prestige. And Paul says, what we need to, has, to understand, there's, a, there's this window of weakness that we need to understand as Christians. We're not chasing power. It's weakness. Paul says, I'm a prisoner. I can't go where I want to go. I'm just a steward. I'm a, I'm a minister. He says, he made up a word. He goes, this was the grace of God given to me. I'm, I'm the least I'm the leastest, is what he did. I'm the leaster. Of, of, of all the saints, I'm the smallest. I mean, traditionally, historically, uh, Paul was always thought to be small because his name means small Paul. That's what he's saying. He's like probably a short guy. I know it's hard to picture when you're looking at me right, what that would look like right now, a guy named Paul being short, but that, that's what Paul means, small and Paul. And Paul says, this is who I am. I'm the leastest. I'm the smallest of the small when it comes to the grace of God, but I'm still a saint of God, but I'm the weakest. I'm a prisoner. I'm a steward I'm a minister of the gospel, and I'm the least. He didn't think himself the obvious choice to be the one to go to the Gentiles. I mean, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He, he should have been the one going to the Jews because he knew all the Old Testament. He had it memorized. He was a smart guy. But God says, no, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. He's like, I'm not the right choice. I wouldn't be the obvious one. I'm the least of all the people. And besides that, I tried to kill out Christianity. I'm the least person that should be out there telling people about Jesus Christ. He never got over the fact that he was the weakest, and he never tried to gain his power, but there was great pressure on him because this is what he was called to preach. He goes, I'm called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. How do you do that? 
the untrackable riches of Christ is what he was called to do and what, what Paul knew and what we need to know. For some of you who've been praying a long time, for your coworker or your family member or your church, is that Paul understood that God works through weakness and the reality is that it's, there's, there's a slow process of the gospel. We're often scratching our heads with what God's doing with things, aren't we? we look at our own lives, we look at our friends' lives, we look at our church life, and we're like, what, 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 what? This doesn't seem like the unsearchable riches of God. We're often last scratching our heads, and that's the reality. But that's how God uses to change the world. There's this weakness, he says. I'm a prisoner. I'm a slave. I'm the least person to be having this grace. But it's this grace that I have been given. Remember the movie with Liam Neeson, Taken, where he's got this special set of skills, highly trained. You know what the special set of skills that Christians have? Is weakness. That's it, which is not a skill. But that's all that we really, in a sense, have. Look what Paul said about his own weakness in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 16, he says, for, for, what, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is an unbelievable message that we have, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're scratching our heads all the time, trying to figure out what's God doing with this church? What's God doing with my family? What's God doing in my life? We're, we're perplexed. We're scratching our heads, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted. We're, we're not struck down. We're forsaken, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, which is what the church is called to do. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul recognized he was unbelievably weak, and if we don't recognize it, it is from our weaknesses that God is glorified. In his weakness, in our weakness, his grace is enough. His grace is enough because there's this, this presence was given to him. This, he says, this grace was given to me. So we need to ponder before you get so frustrated and go into despair, whatever situation you're dealing with, and you read all the promises of God and you scratch your head saying, how does that, doesn't seem like it's fit, doesn't seem like it's real, it's real. But the, well, the way we get the grace of God is often through our weakness. God uses our weakness. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's sovereignly, completely in control. We need to ponder that. And then we need to realize the power comes from God and not us. And we have no idea when God's going to come out and bring his power. 1857, over 100 and some years ago, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers, most, at the time one of the most famous preachers around the, around the world, they would print his sermons in the New York Times and every major paper around the world. 
They built a new cathedral, and he was getting ready to preach, and he showed up on, the, on a Saturday morning to, just to set the pulpit to figure out where the acoustics would be best. He gets up there to speak. He just walks up to the pulpit. Nobody else knew what he was doing, trying to figure out where to put it, and he yelled out, big, huge, massive new building they were building with a balcony. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Tested his acoustics and went home. But what he didn't know was up in the top, there was a construction guy just tightened some bolts, and he heard him say that. He got so moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, he put his tools down, he went home, had been struggling, and for, and for a few days struggled with that word until he became a Christian. And on his deathbed told the story about how he heard Charles Spurgeon when nobody else knew. And Charles Spurgeon two days later spoke to 21,000 people. We have no idea the results of that message. But we do know the results of one little word to somebody who he didn't even know was there. It's the power of God that moves people. It's the Holy Spirit that wakes people. It's your weakness that God wants to, to glory in. So it's, we need to ponder it. We need to pray. In our, workness, God, in our weakness, God works his grace through us. Your biggest weakness Maybe what God's using to display the manifold wisdom in ways you have no idea how. And so he gives us this window of weakness, and which moves, Paul says, it's kind of this window of witness for us. Verse 10, so that all of this stuff, all the fact that I've been given this unbelievable grace, this manifold wisdom of God, and all of this weakness that I feel constantly, that, that, that there's just the grace of God working in me, why is it this way? What's the point of it? Why did God choose it to do it this way? Why does God seem so obsessed to use weakness? It's so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said the reason God does it and seems to really glory in weakness is because he's displaying his wisdom to the rulers and to the authorities, to the angels and the powers. You say, the angels, it says in first, people long to look at this. They, they, they look down at the church and they're amazed by this. What is God doing? And it thrills them. And the demonic powers of this world, Princeton, the power that, that, that we deal with, they thought for sure they crushed Jesus. They thought, they thought that we got this God figure. We, we rule this world. And God says, no, you don't. Because what you thought was failure was my plan all along. My plan all along was that through the, this, the eternal purpose of God that was realized in Jesus Christ, it was my plan from the beginning. Before I created the world, my plan was that there would be Jesus on the cross. And in his weakness, Satan and the demonic powers, you, you thought you won. It was never going to happen. And it's through the church where these gatherings of people called out from around the world with different personalities, different nationalities, different tongues. Everywhere you look, anywhere you go, when Jesus is preached, people respond to the gospel and God is rescuing people, delivering them, redeeming them. It's the, the witness of the gospel. 
John Sott said it's through this old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. But it's through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to angels who are looking down in awe. Why would you love them so much, God? Why would you love them so much? They, they rebelled against you. Why would you do that? And then they see what happens in the church. They see what God's doing in people's lives, and, and they're, they're awed by it. And the hostile powers look at it, and they, 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 they have no control. They, they know they've lost, and they know they are losing. And it's this multicolored, manifold wisdom of God, layered upon layer that we can't figure out all the quirky awkwardness, all the eccentric stuff, all the things that confuse us of the body of Christ and the church. With the good, with the bad, God's taking it all and he's weaving it together and it is blowing the minds of angels and the evil powers. And it's displaying his wisdom, which means this manifold wisdom of God made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places, which was God's always purpose, means the church matters. It's the body of Christ where the fullness of God is being visibly seen throughout the world. John Stott mentioned that the church is central to history. It will always survive. Every generation has said, this is it for the church. The church isn't going to survive. You can read all kinds of blogs. The millennials are going to destroy the church. They said that about you when you were in the 60s, in the 70s. It's not true. The church is always going to survive. It's central to history. This is always part of God's plan. It will survive. The church is central to the gospel. Christ is the head, and the church is the body. This is how the gospel gets spread out through the means of people who are meshed together in ways that they never would naturally be meshed together. It's the manifold wisdom of God. The church is central to Christian life, which means the church is not an option for believers. The church is what you are put into. You you can't have a head without a body. The church is not optional for Christians, even though our culture says, I can love Jesus and not be a part of his church, his expression. It's not true. You'll never find that in the Bible. It's a lie from the powers who've been defeated who are watching the church blow them away and will blow them away. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in Baltimore for a number of years, and there was a woman in his church named Judith whose husband was an alcoholic. Her son was a drug addict. She was unchurched, never been in church in her entire life. She was in her 40s, and somebody invited her to church. So she came to Eugene Peterson's church for a while. She sat there for a few months, didn't get it for a while. And then eventually, she came to know Jesus Christ. Her life was turned around, and she was an artist. And she was very in this creative, secular world that she lived in. Eventually, Andrew Peterson retired, and she moved away. And so she wrote him a letter. And I'm talking about just her life and the struggles that she had been through. And she had tried everything before she came to Jesus Christ. And this is what the letter said. She goes, Dear Pastor, among my artist friends, I feel so defensive about my life. I mean, about going to church. They have no idea of what I am doing and act bewildered, so I try to be unobtrusive about it. But as my church life takes on more and more importance, it's essential now to my survival. It's hard to shield it from my friends. I feel 
protective of it, not wanting it to be dismissed or minimized or trivialized. It's like I'm trying to protect it from profanation or sacrilege. But it is strong. It is increasingly difficult to keep it quiet. It's not as if I'm ashamed or embarrassed. It's just I don't want it belittled. A longtime secular friend and a superb artist just the other day was appalled. What is this I hear about you going to church? Another found out what I was, that I was going on a three-week mission trip to Haiti and was incredulous. You, Judith, you going to Haiti with a church group? What has gotten into you? I don't feel strong enough to defend my actions. My friends would accept me far more readily if they found that I was in some bizarre cult involving exotic or strange activities like black magic or experiments with levitation. But going to church is branded with terrible ordinariness. But that is what endears it to me. Both the church and and this facade of ordinariness. When you pull back the veil of ordinariness, you find the most extraordinary life behind it. But I feel so isolated and inadequate to explain to my husband and close friends, even myself, what it is. It's as if I would have to undress myself before them. Maybe if I was willing to do that, they would not dare disdain me. More likely, they would just pity me. As, is, as it is, they just adjust their neckties a little tighter. I'm feeling raw and cold and vulnerable and something of a fool. I guess I don't feel too badly about being a fool within the context of the secular world. From the way they look at me, I don't have much to show for my new life. I can't point to a life mended. Many of the sorrows and difficulties seem mended for a time only to bust open again. But to tell you the truth, I haven't been on medication since June. For that I, was, for that I feel grateful. When I try to explain myself to these friends, I feel as if I'm suspended in a hang glider between the material and the immaterial, casting a shadow down far far below, and they say, see, it's nothing but a shadow work. Perhaps it takes a fool to savor the joy of shadow work, the shadow cast as I'm attending to the unknown, the unpaid for, the freely given. Judith got it. She had no romantic illusions of the church. It didn't change her life drastically. She still struggled. She still had weakness. She still had sorrows. But she got grace. She got the gospel. She saw the windows of the wonder of what it was. She saw in her weakness that she needed to continually keep clearing them away. And as she did that, witness started to happen. People started to notice a difference in her life. And it was all the glorious work of God. It was all the glorious work of grace. And she continued through it. That's what the church is. That's what we're called to be. And all the while, as Peterson said, all the while the church is just quietly and without false advertising immersing us in the conditions of becoming mature to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Is that your call May we be moved, Cornerstone, to pray with Paul for eyes to see and ears to hear that this is the church. It's the manifold wisdom of God being displayed to the world. And he uses weak people like us to do it for his glory. And it's all of sheer grace to us.